tonight on the readout. Saturday night, I thought I was dead. My last phone call was to my father. And um, what was that? I call thought like? I was dead Saturday night. That was horrible. Yeah, I wanted him to. Um, I told him I was probably going to die, that I've been shot. As Club Q victims recover, a look at why Colorado is especially susceptible to the kind of deadly violence we saw on Saturday night. And the state's long character arc, from a state riddled with intolerance and gun violence to one that had started to turn it around. Also tonight, the political media wants you to believe Ron DeSantis was the big winner from the midterms. I'll tell you why they're wrong and talk with arguably the biggest winner of all. The governor they call Big Gretch re-elected Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Plus, a very bad day in court for Donald Trump and his lawyers, who for all of their efforts to defend the indefensible, like the stolen documents and his tax returns, probably won't even get paid. We begin tonight with the Colorado Springs community still mourning Saturday's mass shooting at Club Q, a tragic reminder of the ongoing anti-LGBTQ hate that we live with but also of what it means that a sanctuary for the city's LGBTQ community even existed in Colorado Springs in the first place, a longtime center of anti-LGBTQ activism going back to the 1990s. In 1992, a Colorado Springs right-wing religious group, Colorado for Family Values, ran a ballot measure to bar state and local governments from passing laws prohibiting LGBTQ discrimination in direct response to anti-discrimination laws passed in progressive cities like Denver. It was later called Amendment 2 and was backed by another right-wing group based in Colorado Springs, Focus on the Family. Passed by Colorado voters, it sparked a national boycott, costing the state millions of dollars and earning it the monitor, the moniker, the hate state. But in the 30 years since, Colorado has become a leader on LGBTQ rights, electing Jared Polis, the nation's first openly gay governor, and passing laws banning gay conversion therapy and making it easier for transgender individuals to update their birth certificates in recent years, among other things. It's a similar arc to Colorado's approach to gun legislation after two of the most horrific mass shootings in recent memory, Columbine High School in 1999 and the Aurora Theater Massacre in 2012. The state adopted no fewer than 10 gun regulations in the decade after Aurora, including a 2019 red flag law permitting judges to seize weapons from people who were deemed dangerous to themselves or others. The Colorado Springs suspect, identified as Anderson Lee Aldrich, may have evaded that law after allegedly threatening to attack his mother with a homemade bomb last year. Doorbell video obtained by NBC News from the alleged incident showed the suspect walking out of the home with his hands up before he was arrested. But there's no record that charges were ever filed, failing to trigger the law that might have allowed authorities to seize weapons his mother said he had with him at the time. But Colorado Springs' home county is also especially hostile to the red flag law. The El Paso County Sheriff's Office declared it a Second Amendment preservation county and has refused to enforce aspects of it. Meanwhile, no formal charges have yet been filed against the suspect, who's been released from the hospital and turned over to El Paso County's Sheriff's Office. He's expected to appear, virtu appear virtually in court tomorrow. And tributes continue for the five murdered victims, Kelly Loving, Derek Rump, Daniel Aston, Ashley Paw, and Raymond Green Vance. Vance's girlfriend was the daughter of one of Saturday's heroes, Army veteran Richard Fierro, 
who was at the club with his family and described how he and others took down the suspect and saved countless lives. I just know I got into mode and I needed to save my family. And that family was, at that time, everybody in that room. Um, and that's what I, I, I was trained to do. I saw him and I went and got him. I feel for every single person in that room. I feel no joy. I'm not happy. I'm not excited. That guy is still alive and my, my family is not. Joining me now is Joshua Thurman, who witnessed the shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, and Nadine Bridges, executive director of One Colorado. Thank you both for being here. And I, I do want to start with you, Joshua. And if, if you can, and I'm sorry to make you have to relive it, but tell us what happened in your experience inside Club Q that night. As I was dancing on the dance floor, um, I heard a round of shots, four to five shots ring out. And... In my mind, it, it felt like it was syncopated with the music. So I really didn't pay it any attention. Um, I heard another four to five shots ring out. And at that time, it was out of sync with the music and I could feel something was wrong. So as I turned to my left, I saw the flash from the gun um, up on the, the way the bar was set up, up on the in the bar area and the dance floor was like a little lower. Um, but I could see the flash from the gun. And so immediately I ran, um, I ran to the dressing room. There's a curtain where the performers, you know, uh, stand on the stage and behind that is a dressing room. And so I ran there and Rich Fieri's daughter, Cassie, she joined me. I, and I didn't know at the time, but once we got inside, I immediately told them to close and lock the doors. We cut off the lights and we got down on the ground. And the other person was a drag performer. She immediately got on the phone and called the police. Um, let, let me ask you this question. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what you went through. Um, can you talk about this space? I'm going to take you to a, a happier place. Um, talk about what this space meant to you and other members of the LGBTQ community before it was desecrated this way. Oh my God. It was such a, it's such a happy place. Um, I, you know, I came out when I was like 24, 25, you know, um, it helped me discover who I was. It helped me discover my love to dance. I became an employee like around 2010, 2011 and, you know, worked there for, for about four, four and a half, five years. Um, I made tons of great friends, you know, it's a very welcoming community. I've performed there in drag a few times, you know, they have a show on Sundays called Crush, and it was open to any and everybody that wanted to perform. It wasn't just for the LGBTQIA+. It was for everybody. Um, it was such a warming and welcoming place. The owners, the managers, they were just so friendly. The bartenders, you know, every weekend was a theme party. It was from the bartenders to the DJs to the go-go dancers. It, it, it was home. It was home to a lot of people and to not have that anymore hurts. But yeah. I mean, we do have other places here in the Springs, but again, that was home to a lot of people that, you know, performed there, made names for themselves there. I can list a number of you, but it's more about the people that lost their lives senselessly, senselessly over what, you know, 
Um, yeah. 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 In, indeed. You know, uh, let me bring you in, Nadine Bridges. I mean, I grew up in Denver, um, in Montbello. Um, and, and I can tell you that Denver and Colorado Springs, even growing up there, is very different, right? When I think Colorado Springs, I think focus on the family. That's the main thing I think about when I think about that community. It's very, very conservative. Can you just talk about Colorado's history as being a bastion of the far religious right? And we don't, you know, they have, he hasn't been charged. You know, we don't know all the full charges, but it's, it's look it in the direction like this was a biased crime, potentially. Just talk about Colorado's welcoming or not as welcoming um, sort of stance toward LGBTQ people, particularly Colorado Springs. Um, yeah, I think, um, as, as was mentioned earlier, uh, we were known as the hate state. Um, you know, our organization um, is a statewide organization. We have folks um, who are in Colorado Springs, um, as well as out in the Western Slope. Um, and although we have passed uh, a number of legislation to protect our community, um, we have been battling um, <clears throat> some of these areas. We know that uh, representation on the State Board of Education um, just recently tried to move references of um, LGBTQ and BIPOC historical contributions um, from uh, the curriculum from K through three. Um, at those public meetings, we heard uh, leaders, essentially supposed leaders in our community, calling our community members groomers, um, and saying just very disrespectful and despicable things to young people and transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive folks. Um, we know that other folks um, like uh, Heidi Ganal, who um, specifically spoke about young people being trained to be furries and using bathrooms, uh, kitty litter as bathrooms. Um, and we know that uh, Representative Bobert was not directly in Colorado Springs, but close enough, um, has said some of the most vile things um, and uplifted vile vile messages, anti-trans messages um, about our community. Um, so although um, we don't know what the motive of, of this shooter was, what I can say is that you go to a club that is a safe haven for community, um, a place where they, they are not judged, um, where they can have joy and love um, and shoot at them um, and kill people, um, that is hate. Um, and, um, there's no question about it. I know that there's laws and regulations about how to define that, but the reality is, is that is hate. And, um, anybody who's going to put those type of despicable messages out there, um, without critical thought or knowledge, um, you're going to gain a following. And that is exactly what happened. They have used, um, hate towards our LGBTQ community, youth and young adults for their own political gain. Um, and this is what happens when you don't serve your community and uplift them the way you're supposed to as leaders of, of, of the state. Um, this is what happens. Yeah, I mean, and Colorado has had, an, uh, it, like, I talk about a character arc. I mean, in the 1920s, the Klan ran Colorado, right? They used to burn their right. crosses um, in the mountains so that everybody black could see them because it's the Mile High City. Absolutely. You could see the cross burnings anywhere you were. So it's been a different kind of state. And the Southern Poverty Law Center right now says that the number of hate groups, anti-LGBTQ, specifically hate groups, are growing across the U.S. There are four of them just in the state of Colorado. I want to ask you, Joshua, about you know, my friend Brandon Wolf, you know, survived a, a, a very similar um, shooting in Orlando, Florida, 
And, you know, he talks a lot about just having to try to move around in the world afterwards. And there's the sense of insecurity. But gun violence, if you look at the number of mass shootings just in Colorado, from Club Q, which is just the latest one, all the way back to Aurora, to Columbine, you could just go on and on and on. Just talk about how you are moving in this space now after this happened and, you know, how secure and comfortable do you feel? Honestly, my sense of security is gone. Um, I've been living in Colorado Springs since 2007. And this is the first time that, like, honestly, I don't feel safe. Um, I'm looking both ways now as I walk to my car and it's literally five feet from my doorstep. I'm, you know, I feel like any loud sound I hear, I'm like immediately ducking or running and it shouldn't have to be like that. Like it's, it's very terrifying. It's very terrifying. Yeah. And Nadine, you know, the, the, there is a community of allies, obviously in Colorado Springs. I mean, Mr. Fierro, who is one of the big heroes of that night, it was his first time at a drag show. He was there with his wife and kids, you know, just really blowing up this idea. You know, I've been to drag shows where there were kids there, you know, there was, it was a lot of fun. And he, I think has just spoken so eloquently to what it means to be an ally. Um, Are you finding enough allies in the state of Colorado? Obviously your governor clearly, you know, is a good advocate because he's a member of the community, but are you feeling the, the, the alliance and the love after this shooting? Yes. I mean, you know, um, we definitely have felt the love. I think, um, you know, Josh, I, I just want to specifically say to you, like, we hear you and, and many of the folks you've been sharing your story and they've been reaching out to us um, as an LGBTQ advocacy organization to say, what can we do? What are the things that are necessary to do to, to, to uplift and support the community and demonstrate that we aren't uh, these types of people, um, you know, in that same vein, I would be remiss if I wasn't honest to say that um, we certainly have started to receive um, threats um, to uh, our, 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 um, my staff um, in our community. So with with the support, uh, there's also a threat of harm. Um, and we're trying to do our best to mitigate that as we continue to protect um, the folks in Colorado Springs and across the state. Yeah. Uh, Joshua Thurman, I hope that you can feel, I think all of our audience is giving you big virtual hugs right now. I hope you can feel them, um, and that they are healing for you. Um, I've seen a few of your, uh, interviews and you're so moving and we are glad that you are still here. Uh, we are very glad that you are still here. Uh, God bless you. And Nadine Bridges, thank you for all that you do, uh, in my growing up state of Colorado. I appreciate you both. Um, and up next on the readout. Um, She is one of the Democrats' biggest stars. Governor Gretchen Whitmer joins me following an impressive midterm performance for Democrats in Michigan and across the nation. The readout continues after this. This month's midterm election was a resounding victory for a young, telegenic governor from a state Donald Trump won in 2016. Nearing that, you probably think that I'm talking about Florida's Ron DeSantis, who has become the media's mean little darling. But nope, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who soundly defeated her Trump-backed challenger, election denier Tudor Dixon. Whitmer walloped Dixon by 11 points, a wider margin than in 2018 when she first became governor. A coalition of white and black women and independents joined together to boost this governor to her second term. 
And that's not all. Democratic candidates for the Michigan House and Senate won a majority of votes this year, putting their party in control of both legislative chambers, thanks in large part to a fair map drawn by a Citizens Commission instead of one crafted by Republicans. Gone is the decades-long advantage that Republicans had built up through gerrymandering. Governor Whitmer has already promised to work with the state's Democratic legislature to fully rescind a 1931 law that bans abortion, pass gun control legislation, and codify same-sex marriage rights, issues that the Republican-led legislature refused to entertain. This comes after nearly 57 percent of Michigan voters backed a ballot measure seeking to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. And Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer joins me now. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And I, I do have to ask you, you know, how now that you, I think it's been 130 years since Democrats have had the so-called trifecta, having both uh, the legislative houses and the governorship. I just listed a long laundry list of things you want to do. What's your first priority when you when the new session starts? Well, I'm really excited, Joy. To be honest, in the midterm, I don't think anyone expected us to run the tables the way that we did. As you said, this has only happened four times in 130 years. So I'm excited about having a legislature that'll work with me as opposed to against me, one that will work on the agenda, making Michigan a place where every person has a path to prosperity, funding public education, making sure that we hit top 10 in terms of literacy in the country, and really building opportunity and paths to prosperity for every person, no matter who you are, what you look like, how you worship, or who you love, or how you identify. Michigan's a place for you, and we're going to make it so. And, you know, it's it, I, I compare it to Florida because people still sort of pine to think of Florida as a swing state. It's not. It's been trending red for a long time and it is a red state now. And, you know, for that governor to get reelected and to add seats, he like illegally gerrymandered the state. Michigan is different. Michigan genuinely is a swing state. It swung back and forth between Joe Biden, between President Obama, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So it's a real swing state. Talk about how important it was for that gerrymandering um, to be dismantled to make the results reflect what Michiganders actually voted for. Well, it was critical for decades. Republicans have gerrymandered Michigan and they have run, you know, all of state government most of the time. It's been 40 years since Democrats were in control here. And so it's an exciting opportunity to give the power back to the people. The people should choose their leaders, not the other way around. And when you don't have gerrymandering and you've got fundamental rights on the ballot and a Democratic Party that is focused on solving problems and making people's lives better and growing an economy that creates real opportunity for all people, um, the, when the public has the opportunity to make their voice heard, boy, did they make it heard loud and clear here in Michigan. And I think if we had fairly drawn districts across the country, we would have a very different dynamic playing out across the U.S. right now. We know abortion was a, a very important issue. Republicans tried to keep that ballot measure off the state ballot because they knew it was coming, right? They could see that it was going to be bad for them. It obviously passed. But how important was this idea of democracy? I mean, unfortunately, you have had firsthand experience with what it looks like when people don't believe that elections should count and that they should have their way no matter what, including if they have to use violence. How important was the democracy message, in your view, to the results of the election for Democrats? I think it was very important. You know, my opponent was someone who was stoking political violence, making light of a plot to kidnap and kill a sitting governor, um, undermining confidence in our institutions, 
conspiracy theorist who was denying the outcome of elections. I was really grateful that she actually called and conceded the day after the election. Um, I wasn't sure if that would happen. And I think it is so important that we understand, appreciate, and respect the will of the people. And I think that this the core question around the health and welfare and safety of this democracy was front and center for a lot of voters, as were fundamental rights and, uh, you know, a party that is focused on the fundamentals as well. I think all of these things were played into what we saw happen here in Michigan. When the voters choose their leaders, they choose leaders who are focused on solving problems and making their lives better, not those that are sowing conspiracy theories and trying to undermine our democracy. And, you know, um, I have a very good friend, one of my oldest friends from college, lives in Flint, is a Flint native. And so we know that for black Michiganders, it's been a struggle under previous governors to get just basic fairness, environmental fairness. There's been a lot of environmental racism and pain delivered by your predecessor. Um, for black Michiganders, because this is a state with not a huge black population, but really important cities, big cities that have real important needs, what would you say that they got out of this election? Well, I think black voters made their voices heard as well, right? Um, I think it's crucial to to stay focused on the things that will create paths to prosperity for every person. We closed the gap between how we funded our schools. For a long time in Michigan, wealthier areas got a lot more resources to educate their kids and districts with fewer resources got less and that flew in the face of all the science. We closed that gap and then built equity on top with putting more money into English language learners, at risk, kids with special needs. We have leveled the financial barrier to skills for 170,000 Michiganders. We're creating real opportunity with with our racial disparities task force that started during COVID, but we've carried it forward, whether it is racial bias training or it is ensuring that um, our policies focus on things like sickle cell and um, issues that are uniquely and disproportionately felt by the Black community. So this is something that's really important. And today I announced the appointment of the first Black woman to the Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, Kyra Harris-Bolden is going to be phenomenal justice here in Michigan. But this was, I think, a major step forward. And after 185 years for her to be the first, it's about damn time. Yeah. And and one last question. There is this uh, new meme on the right that teachers, Mike Pompeo, who used to be the defense secretary, said the most dangerous person in the world is Randy Weingarten. Um, as a woman who's faced targeting, what do you make of this idea that they are comparing the leader of the teachers union, a woman, and setting her up as a hate object and teachers who are mainly women up as hate objects as well on the right? It's disgusting and there is no place for it. And anyone who wants, who holds a leadership position or wants to hold a leadership position or any person of goodwill needs to call this out. We have seen, whether it's anti-Semitism or homophobia or it is anti almost anything, right? Anti-otherism. Um, has grown in this country, has created a very dangerous environment. For three years, I've been trying to get people to lower the temperature. It is this kind of rhetoric that endangers our fellow Americans, and that was roundly rejected in this last election. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, are you aware of the nickname Big Gretch? And I don't know if you saw that rap video that was made for you at the end. Are you aware of that nickname? I just I have to pull an Ari Melba here and ask if you're aware of your hip hop nickname. <laughs> oh, I'm very aware of it, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, thank you very much. Um, still ahead. All rise. We are tracking a bunch of really important cases making their way through the courts today. The latest on Trump and the DOJ, Lindsey Graham's grand jury testimony, the Supreme Court and more. That is straight ahead.
bluntly, it has been a bad day in court for Donald Trump. First, you have an 11th Circuit Appeals Court panel that appears likely to rule in favor of the Justice Department and throw out the special master in the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Trump's lawyer faced a grilling today as he struggled to prove that the former president needs the items taken to be returned, then needs the items taken to be returned to him, and that the search itself was illegal. The chief judge, William Pryor, even said, if you can't establish that it was unlawful, then what are we even doing here? Then you have one of Trump's most faithful minions, Senator Lindsey Graham, testifying for more than two hours before a Georgia grand jury investigating possible interference in the 2020 presidential election. Graham allegedly made two phone calls to Georgia Secretary of State, suggesting that he reject some legally cast ballots. On top of all that, the U.S. Supreme Court today unanimously rejected Trump's last-ditch plea to block the release of his tax records to House Democrats, which means lawmakers could potentially get their hands on the former president's tax returns before Republicans take control of the House in January. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, and Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney. Both are MSNBC legal analysts. I'm going to go in reverse order, and I'm going to start with you, Glenn. The tax return situation. Democrats could theoretically get them very soon before the holidays. In theory, what would that mean for Trump legally? Yeah, that's been a long time coming. He has fought tooth and nail, you know, up through the Supreme Court. It was interesting to see that there were no dissents reported. So it feels like this was a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court. I think one Congress and eventually we the people will find out if he really is a billionaire, a millionaire, maybe only a thousandaire. Who knows? And it would also be good for us to to learn if he were perhaps compromised by some sort of financial entanglements, which, you know, that might be one of the reasons he has fought so hard to keep these tax returns hidden for, what, six, seven years now. So uh, I think it is he's finally run out of rope. And now we're finally going to learn a few things about what Donald Trump was really all about. Uh, let's go to the Lindsey Graham situation, Charles Coleman uh, Jr. Um, he didn't want to testify. He fought it as far as he could through the courts. Now he's got to testify. In, in, do you think that Lindsey Graham's testimony in any way jeopardizes Trump's legal position in Georgia? Well, Joy, that remains to be seen. I do think that Lindsey Graham was going to do everything that he could to avoid answering as many questions as possible, even after the judge ordered him to go ahead and testify and noted that he could not avoid having to appear before this grand jury under the guise of the speech and debate clause, which is what he had been trying to argue so far. I think that Lindsey Graham was likely going to show up and be a very difficult witness. At the same time, I think that Fonnie Willis and prosecutors in the Fulton County DA's office were ready for that. I think that they were going to ask what it was that they knew that they could and narrowly tailor their questions to be in line with and reconcile with the judge's order in this regard. So I don't expect that they gave him very much ground to actually make a speech and debate clause uh, claim in order to avoid his question, their questions. That being said, in terms of whatever they can get, You have to keep in mind that there have been a number of people from Trump's inner circle who they have been questioning as part of this election probe. And I think that if not Lindsey Graham, there may be someone else who's giving them as much information as they can get. But trust and believe, I do anticipate that this investigation is going to squeeze as many people as tightly as they can. And if there is anything that connects Donald Trump to what actually happened in Georgia, they're going to find it. 
And, you know, I have more faith, Glenn, in Fonnie Willis than I do. I'm I'm just being honest in um, the current attorney general. And that's just my built in skepticism. You know, the post I have post Mueller, you know, PTSD. And so I wonder if you can just go through for me. Um, You now have this argument over whether to keep the special master, but you also now have this special counsel. How do those things interact um, and or do they interact at all? And do you think that the uh, appointment of a special master just slows things down, which is my theory, I'm not a lawyer, or does it help move things along? You know, I think they absolutely interact because one of the tasks that has been assigned to Jack Smith, the newly appointed special counsel, is to investigate the crimes that may have been committed by Donald Trump when he stole, let's call it what it is, classified information from the White House, and then unlawfully concealed it at Mar-a-Lago. It looks like, given the, the, the tone of the 11th Circuit argument today, that three Republican-appointed judges are having none of it, and it sounds like they may finally put this special master thing out of its misery, which will be good because that will free everything up for Jack Smith's team of attorneys. I actually think, Joy, there is a chance that the appointment of Jack Smith will considerably speed things up. I think we can look back and conclude that Attorney General Merrick Garland was too much judge and not enough prosecutor. He was a prosecutor in my former office many years ago, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. But then for a quarter of a century, he was a judge thinking deep thoughts, reviewing every angle of every legal issue, which is what we want judges to do. It just doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. make for a good prosecutor. So I think Jack Smith looks like he will come in and go gangbusters. But Joy, as you say, we kind of have superhero fatigue, don't we? We thought Mueller would bring it home. Bill Barr didn't let him. We thought Garland would bring it home. Turned out not to be the case. You know, let's wait and see. But I think this could actually be a good development. Well, we'll see, because, you know, Charles, I mean, the thing that to me seems Trump, they have Trump dead to rights is stealing those documents. You and everybody on this panel, we'd all be in jail already. We would have been in jail for months if we had stolen those classified documents. The fact that he's been able to drag it out and his uh, January 6th, I mean, I think has credibly proved that he was the chief beneficiary and the orchestrator of the January 6th insurrection. Right now, you have jury deliberations. You have an oath keeper, uh, Elmer, who calls himself Stuart Rhodes to sound cooler than he is. He's, you know, in, in the that case has gone to the jury. It's hard to believe that these people just spontaneously decided to overthrow the government to put Donald Trump in, and he had no idea. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So do you share my skepticism that this process will ever lead to accountability? Because this guy is starting to look untouchable. Well, Joy, that's been my point and and my concern for a very long time. I, I also think that one of the things that we have to be prepared for, and I think you and I had talked about this before, is the notion of an anticlimactic ending. I think that in any universe, regardless of what happens, we need to be prepared for something that ultimately may be somewhat anticlimactic, depending on whatever your position is. If Donald Trump ends up being held accountable, being prosecuted, being convicted and only goes to jail for a couple of months or a couple of years or what have you, a lot of people are going to feel like that's it. It was all of that for this. Uh, Donald Trump is not prosecuted. If he doesn't get indicted, if it doesn't move forward, then of course people will look at that as a huge disappointment. I don't know that any of us are actually on the same page with what it is that we want to see happen to Donald Trump. 
accountability is fine, but what does that actually mean? And then accountability, even if it is in the way of a criminal conviction, what is the punishment for that that would actually right. fit what it is he's done? I don't think that we know, and I don't know if we'll ever see it. I mean, I love, love Tish James, but that was a fine. Weisselberg, dead to rights, two months in jail, fine. Like, you know, you could just go through it. All of his minions, the top minions. It doesn't seem like the slap on the wrist is kind of what they're getting, but we shall see. I'm going to try to be less skeptical. How about that? <laughs> Glenn Kirchner and Charles Coleman, thank you both very much. Up next, the politics of cruelty. Imagine religion, but without any empathy, kindness, or generosity of spirit. Oh, my bad. You don't have to imagine it because it already has a vice-like grip on today's Republican Party. We'll be right back. White evangelicals have a firm grip on the Republican Party, and for good reason. They serve as a reliable and solidly Republican voting bloc. But here's the thing. Americans have been turning their backs on conservative Christianity. The U.S. is growing less religious and less white, and white evangelicals are also losing a powerful segment of American voters who are rejecting their platform, namely young voters. Younger Americans, the most diverse demographic in this country, are less likely to sign up for, say, supporting Trump or upholding white Christian supremacy. Researchers at Tufts estimate that voters between the ages of 18 and 29 had the second highest turnout in midterm elections in almost 30 years. And white voters in that age group defied the demographic history and voted in the majority for Democrats. According to a recent Harvard youth poll, only 12 percent identify as fundamentalist evangelical. I mean, it makes sense, right? Young people grew up in a more tolerant society. They've seen a black president, more women and LGBTQ members of Congress. And they are recoiling at attempts by older white evangelicals, including on the Supreme Court, to try to snatch away their freedoms and their self-determination. It's quite the bind, isn't it? But one of white evangelicals' own making— The religious right is in decline, and the rest of America refuses to go down with them. Because there isn't much Jesus in the religious right anymore. It's all about cruelty politics, being anti-anything that isn't them. It's about putting up walls, fearing refugees rather than helping them. It's about eradicating the existence of LGBTQ people. It's about the unbelievably inhumane consequences of their forced birth crusade, which has nothing to do with life. Let's just be clear and everything to do with a raw contempt for modern women and girls. You know what's actually in the Bible? The call to compassion, to love, tenderness, and courtesy, characteristics that are woefully absent in the culture wars, but especially in the war against wokeness. You know what wokeness really is at its core? It's empathy, something Republicans don't seem to understand or care for, but something Richard Fierro, One of the heroes who took down the gunman in the Club Q shooting displayed so courageously in the wake of a hate crime. I grew up around so a mix of everything and 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 being able to to share and exchange cultures. That's that's part of being American, much like the the beer summit with with that Obama did. Those are things that for us as as people that sell beer, people that, that have people with libations, right, want people to have fun. But at the end of the day, you want to shake hands and love each other. You know, that's that's what it's all about. When we come back, Bishop William Barber joins me to discuss the empathy deficit and what we can do about it. Stay with us. 
The deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs comes at a time of rising and blatant hate spewing from the religious right, something Republicans double down on only three days after the rampage. Today, Florida's new House speaker promised to ramp up the war against wokeness, a.k.a. empathy, explicitly echoing his governor's hostility toward drag shows with the governor gleefully listening on in the room. And then there's Herschel Walker, whose campaign released a new runoff ad targeting transgender athletes. They spend more time defending drag queen story time than promoting phonics and the science of reading. In this election, moms and dads sent a clear message to these ideologues. Our children are not your social experiment. I'm Riley Gaines, a 12-time NCAA All-American. And I'm Herschel Walker. For more than a decade, I worked so hard. 4 a.m. practices to be the best. But my senior year, I was forced to compete against a biological male. That's unfair and wrong. A man won the swimming title that belonged to a woman, and Senator Warnock voted to let it happen. Again, it's been three days. Joining me now is Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and repairs of the and the head of repairs of the breach. And Bishop, I, you are an evangelical Christian, you know. And so I talk about why white evangelicalism is so focused on mean, because it seems like that's all that they're into. Yeah, well, first, let me join the tears of those who've been crying about what happened in Colorado. And part of the reason Jordan is so focused on mean, because really the operative word is white and the operative word is nationalism. You know, they have actually hijacked religious and Christian and those words, because the truth of the matter is true evangelicalism as a biblical starts with good news to the poor, healing to the brokenhearted, recovery of sight to the blind, welcoming all people, regardless of their, who they are, caring for the least of these, welcoming the immigrant. So what happens is they hijack terms like Christian and religious right, but they don't use those terms the way the Bible actually outlines what should be. And so what you have, as you said, is an empathy gap, but it's just full of a lot of meanness and racism. That's not new. It's as old as the battle between slave master religion and the religion of Frederick Douglass and, 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 and Harriet Tubman. You can see, you know, how the hatred against Jesus looked in real time, because there's nothing about the Jesus of the gospel that I read and used to teach about at Sunday school that's even similar to them. But the question then becomes, what do we do about it, whether somebody is of faith or not of faith or of different faiths? You wrote a, a letter uh, to the Democratic Party. It's in The Nation right now, and it's a pastoral letter. This is part of what you said. I'm troubled by the satisfaction many seem to have with a political reality that will lead to continued policy violence. If the right is mean— Right. Right. And the Democrats policy wise are not like their idea is we're going to do more for more people. Is there something more that Democrats can do to push back against this cruelty? Well, certainly. Not that it's their responsibility. Yeah, that's right. Well, certainly, first of all, as you said, a lot of people, you notice these so-called national, they never talk about Jesus. They just talk about their opinions as though being against gays, being for guns is a Jesus position. But listen, Democrats must not fear engaging in these moral issues. 
Uh, they cannot, when they decide to run, just run on law and order and chase this illusory suburban vote. They need to run on what they do. They need to run on love and run on justice. They need to say, if you elect me, uh, we're going to pass voting rights. We, we've been nine years, joined without the Voting Rights Act in the midst of a democracy. They should be saying right now, before we turn over power, we're going to pass that. They should say, elect us and we're going to pass living wages that we're not going to let uh, 330,000 people die anymore from pandemics because we don't have universal health care. And their candidates should run on that and be clear about that, not run away from it. Uh, they have to be strong and forceful. And they also have to remember that not only are young people turning away, but people who make under $30,000 a year voted 12 points higher for Democrats this time. The exit polls are saying, so run to justice, run to love, run to mercy. Don't be afraid to shape things as moral issues like Franklin Delano Roosevelt did and Kennedy and Johnson and show the difference between what mean public policy violence looks like and what just caring constitutional policies that care for and promote the general welfare looks like run on it, run deep, run hard, go in the communities that, that you're told not to come to go to the deep South, tell for what's going to happen in their everyday lives, because you cannot let meanness have the religious high ground. You have to challenge it every day and in every way. And I think Democrats ought to start right now by not just being so gleeful that we offset the red wave. Be honest about the losses. And right now, before the power changes, show America who you are, pass the Voting Rights Act, pass living wages, and pass the right for a woman to choose uh, 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 nationally. Do it right now. If, if McConnell could do the things he did in the meantime, you know, when he stacked the courts before he lost power, then use your power going into Christmas. Use your power to truly be a part of love and justice and pass it right now. And those two renegade Democrats need to come on and stop siding with those who are in the mean category and start standing with the, with those who want love and justice and mercy for all people. And by the way, justice is not only a Christian, a religious term, it's the first call of the Constitution. Establish justice. That's justice. all we've mm -hmm. wanted. That's all we've ever wanted. Justice, yeah. love, truth and right. Amen. And there is a lame duck session, as you mentioned, coming up. Democrats have done great things in the past. Speaker Pelosi has a really fabulous history of using the lame duck to pass really important legislation. Let's see what they do if they take your admonitions. And yeah, evangelical, the white evangelical church needs to, they might need to have a come to Jesus moment, but they don't seem to like Jesus very much. So we'll see. Bishop William well, Barber, you, thank you, my you, friend. You. I appreciate you. Uh, and that is tonight's read.